Let's pray as we open the Bible together this morning. God, we thank you for the testimony of your word, that you are good, that you are powerful, that you are compassionate, that you are loving and gracious. I pray that as we open your word uh, this morning, that the time would be uh, fruitful for us, that it would be beneficial to us. Uh, Most particularly, I pray that through your word, we'd come to understand uh, who your son Jesus is and what that means for our lives, that you would draw us uh, to him, draw us to yourself through him so that we may have life this morning. We pray this in his name, in Jesus' name, asking for the power of your spirit. Amen. Uh, we start today with Jesus on trial, not, not his official trial, that'll come later in his life, but uh, the trial kind of of public opinion. Uh, Jesus has done some things that not everyone is very happy about, and at this point, it's kind of a, a gut check on what people are going to do with him, what they believe about him, and how they're going to uh, respond to him. So as we kind of enter into this passage of scripture, I want you to imagine uh, a courtroom scene. Um, you can just imagine a modern courtroom. You don't have to try to like go back to the ancient world, but just imagine that a courtroom scene with Jesus uh, on the defense. So he's there, the defendant, and he doesn't have any lawyer beside him. He's just there by himself. And then there's the judge up um, on his bench waiting to preside over this trial. You have the jury, and they're listening. They're, they're weighing the evidence. They're prepared to, to give a verdict. And then there's the prosecution. And the prosecution, they are ready to pounce. They are confident in this case that they're building. And you can see in their posture and in their behavior, they're, they're ready to go after him. Now, the charge is a misdemeanor, but they're going to make this charge stick. They're going to make this count. They, they are intent on making it known that this man is not a good man. They want to publicly discredit him. They want to put pressure on him because all these people are going to see him and, and are interested in what he is doing, and they've become convinced that he is in the wrong, and they want everyone to know it. But the trial doesn't go as expected. And at the outset, when Jesus gives his first short, brief defense, it looks like he has just made things much worse. So here's the first little part of this trial scene. Verse 16 of John 5. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So a picture again, our courtroom scene, if there is a lawyer sitting next to Jesus and he says these things, the lawyer is tugging at Jesus' sleeve, sit down. You can't say things like that. You're making it worse. So the charge against him has gone from a misdemeanor. Suddenly now he's liable for a felony. He has blasphemed against God. They were just looking to discredit him and pressure him. They were persecuting, but now that is ramped up. Now they want to kill him. He has just done something right in front of the court that shows that he is deserving of death. And so at the outset, we wonder, well, how is this going to go? This is not good. But then Jesus steps up and he takes over the rest of the scene. We're not going to hear from anyone else but Jesus himself from here on for the rest of the passage today. He is going to take over this whole courtroom scene, and it's going to take a dramatically different turn. So grab your Bible. We're going to look at this uh, together. 
John chapter five, uh, we started in verse 16, we'll go through verse 47. Um, If you want, you can uh, just follow along with an app on your phone if you have that, or if you want, you can borrow a a Bible from the uh, chair rack in front of you, and this is found on page 1655 uh, of those Bibles. So John five, verse 16, page 1655. So as we look at Jesus taking over this whole scene, he's going to do two things. First, he's going to lay out his identity. This is who he is. And then he's going to give a defense of that identity. Here's how you know that is true. So we start with Jesus laying out his identity. Now, Jesus has just uh, referred to God as his own father. We just read that together. And the people who are listening, they're not happy about that because they rightly see that as he's doing that, he is claiming equality with God. And that's not okay. That made them want to kill him. Now, Instead of backing down from that claim, Jesus is going to use this opportunity to clarify in a powerful way who he is in relationship to God. And this has been one of the big points of emphasis in in this book. We started reading the book of John together, which is a biography of Jesus' life. We started this back in the Christmas season, looking at the opening uh, verses of of the passage, and it's all about Jesus. He is the one and only. He is the Son of God. He's the Word of God who was with God in the very beginning, the powerful one who came to rescue his people. So we as readers of John, we know who Jesus is, and now Jesus is going to tell the people who are listening who he is. And specifically, he's talking about the relationship that he has to God the Father. So he's going to give a series of explanations here. Starts in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does, yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Now, at one level, it looks like Jesus is kind of taken down a notch here. He says, the son can do nothing by himself. But that is immediately followed up by the son does what the father does. So it's this huge affirmation in the midst of that. So what Jesus does is entirely defined by the will and activity of God. The father loves the son, God loves Jesus, and they share in this work together. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here. He's talking about the the integral connection that he has with the father. And this connection is so complete that, that whatever Jesus does is in perfect alignment, alignment with what God himself does. And that means, by the way, that if you get upset about something that Jesus is doing, really, you are upset with what God himself is doing. So Jesus' activity, his ministry, everything that he is doing is entirely defined by the action of God. Now, human analogies are are always falling short. It's difficult for us to to grasp this, but even the the language that Jesus uses of father and son helps us get a little picture of the closeness and and the the cohesion between Jesus and God the Father. So think about, uh, picture a, a father and a son who have a great relationship doing something together that they've always done together, that they love doing together. So maybe it's a father and their son that, that have gone fishing for decades together. And you just go, you go see them out in the boat together and you just see, man, they love this. You can tell that they are just in perfect alignment. They're like casting and helping each other out. They're just, they're cohesive unit. They're clearly doing this together. They love it. 
Or think of a father and son who love to, to build things together. You just watch them and think, man, they are good at this. They, they are together. They are just total, in total alignment with each other. Now, my boys are still pretty young, but, but they love to do projects with me. They love to build things. A couple weeks ago, my four-year-old was, was begging me to build something with him. So, so we went out to the garage. We got some stra- scrap wood together, and we, we built this kind of crude little uh, car together. It was, it was not a big deal, but, but for him, that was such an awesome thing. And he carried that, that little car around with him everywhere for about two weeks because for him, it was not just this, this project, but it was a project that it was a symbol of our relationship. It was a symbol of, of, of how we, we worked together, a product of our joint work a symbol of our love and our unity working together. That's the kind of the image that Jesus is describing here, the Father and the Son working together as this cohesive unit. They have one mind, one work, working together alongside of each other. And then Jesus is going to further talk about what that means, and this is really going to go a lot deeper very quickly here. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, Jesus is saying that God has given him the power over life, the power to raise the dead, to give life. And he has given him the authority to judge the world. Now, for everyone here who's listening to Jesus, they know exactly what that means. Those are God things. Only God has the power over life, and only God has the authority to judge the world. So Jesus is saying that God has given him this role that that is God's role. So this is further, Jesus further saying that, that he is one with God. He is one with the Father. And then he starts to expound what this means. Verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, as he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man." Do not be amazed by this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Now, Jesus has significantly raised the stakes of this courtroom scene. At the outset, Jesus was on trial. He has blasphemed the name of God by claiming equality with God. But that's only blasphemy if it's not true. And now Jesus is laying out his claim of his identity that blows everything else out of the water. He is claiming to have been given by God these God roles. He is one with God himself. And this is punctuated with this indication that what we do with Jesus' claims of who he is, sets the course of our eternal destiny. He said the Father gives the Son ability to give life, and he gives him the authority to judge the world. So here's how that plays out. Those who hear Jesus and believe that God sent him 
They believe that he really is the, the one and only Son of God are made alive. And that made alive isn't just your life is extended a few years, you have a little bit more health, but it is made alive in the eternal sense. Right now, they pass from death to life. It's a huge statement, and, and that's, that's what baptism is signifying. This, by the way, is not a hot tub. We have a baptism later in the service, and, and what baptism is about is passing from death to life. It's a symbol that those who believe in Jesus, they right now have eternal life in Him. That's why we're so, uh, so excited about celebrating that, because it's about this picture of what Jesus is talking about here. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. We'll come back to that. That's the joy-filled celebratory side of this. But there's also a very sober side of this because Jesus indicates here that every single human is going to stand before his judgment seat. So everyone in the entire globe will come before Jesus and a verdict will be pronounced on their life. And Jesus says in that moment, here's how it's going to go. Those who have done good, and good here in the context is defined as believing Jesus, will be raised to eternal life. They'll spend the rest of eternity in the new heaven and the new earth, enjoying the presence of God and worshiping Him forever. But those who have done what is evil, and in this context that means that they have not believed in Jesus, they will be raised and sent to hell apart from God's presence forever. So that's what Jesus lays out before us. Now as we, we think about this, this courtroom scene, we realized that what we thought was happening is not happening. We thought this guy was the defendant. We thought a verdict was going to be pronounced on him. But instead, we see that he's not the defendant. He's actually the judge. He is the one who is going to decide the fate of everyone else. And, and there is a verdict that's coming, but the verdict is coming on, on everyone who hears what he has to say. Now, this is a really sobering statement, but I also want you to see that, that Jesus here is, is offering grace to his people. He's offering a chance for people to change the verdict that is pronounced over them. See, the people who are here and who are listening to him, they've been convinced that Jesus is not sent from God. They're convinced that he is a dangerous person, he's a fraud, no one should listen to him. That means that they are going to be separated from God. They have refused Jesus and they're going to be separated from God for eternity. And that's not okay. And, and Jesus doesn't want that to be their outcome. So he's, he's giving them a wake-up call, and he's offering them a gracious opportunity to change the course of their eternal destiny. Will you acknowledge Jesus is the one and only Son of God sent by him to rescue us and give us life? If you do, if you believe in him, then you have life forever, starting right now, passing from death to life. But if they continue on this path of rejecting Jesus, what that means is that they are separated from God. So Jesus lays this out for him. He, he's saying, this is who I am. This is his identity. And in the course of doing so, it offers this challenge to decide about Jesus. But as they're challenged to decide, Jesus wants them to know that they can actually believe and trust, see that he really is who he says he is. And the claims that Jesus is making about himself are huge claims. Right, we have to acknowledge, if, if you saw someone on the street today saying the things that Jesus is saying, you'd think they're crazy. These are big deal things. But Jesus wants us to know that he's not just talking himself up. He's not some deluded person. And so he invites us to consider the evidence and to weigh it. Specifically, he's going to offer four witnesses that show who he is. The first one is John the Baptist. Look at verse 31. If I testify about myself, Jesus says, 
My testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So John the Baptist, he's the first witness who testifies to the reality of Jesus. John the Baptist was this uh, prophet that God had raised up, and, and his whole job was to point people to Jesus and get people ready for him. And that's what he did. And the people saw him, they, they heard his, his preaching, and they saw his ministry, and they, they recognized that God's power was in this man, and so they went out to see him. Jesus says he was like a lamp burning, and you were drawn to that light. But the irony is they didn't actually listen to John the Baptist. They saw that he was a prophet, they enjoyed going out to see him, but they didn't actually follow his ministry. John was pointing to Jesus, and if they've refused Jesus, then they've missed John too. So John is this first witness. He testifies to Jesus, but he's not the only witness. Look at verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. So this is about the miraculous uh, signs that Jesus is performing, his healing and all these different kind of things. And these provide a powerful testimony to who he is. So we've been reading this book of John together, and we've already seen some of these. The first one was he, he took a huge quantity of water and turned it into a huge quantity of very high quality wine. And in doing so, he's saying, God's feast is here. His banquet is here. And then after that, there's this, there's this boy who is on his deathbed, and his father goes and runs to Jesus and asks, begs for help. And even though Jesus is a couple dozen miles away, he says, your son's healed. And it works. The son is healed. He's showing his power. After that, there's this man who's been crippled for 38 years at this pool of Bethesda. Jesus speaks a word, and immediately he's healed, fully restored. So what you see in these powerful miracles that Jesus does, they provide a testimony. They are witnesses that testify. Jesus really is the one and only Son of God. That's the whole point of those miracles, to point to Jesus. Verse 37, a third witness. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. So God himself serves as the third witness to who Jesus is. They don't recognize that. They don't hear his voice. They don't see his form, but it's the truth nonetheless that God is testifying that he is the one who sent Jesus. And then the fourth and final testimony comes in verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So the Bible, too, stands as Jesus' witness. And this is important for the people who are there to hear because they are people who love God's word. They, they believe that it was authoritative. They're, they're kind of like us. We, we love the Bible. We, we, stand under the, we sit under the authority of scripture. It is the full authority over our lives. We, we study it. We, we love it. We, we seek to live by its truth. But Jesus is saying, you can do that and totally miss out. So if they, if they love the Bible, if they're studying God's word, if they're digging deep into it, but they're missing out on the fact that it's pointing to Jesus, they've missed the whole point of it. So don't say you love the Bible and then refuse Jesus. So what Jesus is doing here, he's giving this, this comprehensive list of witnesses to him. John the Baptist was a witness testifying, yes, Jesus is the one and only, the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And the miracles that Jesus performs, those two are signs that are, serve as, as witnesses, testifying that Jesus is the powerful one that God gave rescuing power. God himself serves as a witness. Yes, this is my loved son. And then scriptures, the word of God, the Bible, points people to who Jesus really is. So all throughout here, Jesus is pointing to evidence that he really is who he says he is. He's not giving deluded uh, claims of a, of a crazy person. His I- divine identity as son of God is backed up by these powerful witnesses. And this is really important because we don't want to be fooled. We need evidence. Back in the 1960s, there was a young doctor named uh, Frank Williams, and he moved into a new town in Georgia, and he became the chief resident um, pediatrician of a hospital down there. He got the job because he uh, met this other doctor at his apartment complex. They became friends pretty quickly, and the doctor knew of this need at a hospital, and so he asked Frank if he was willing to fill in for the position uh, just for a while until they were able to find someone else to fill the spot. So Frank agreed. He decided that he would do this. And for the next almost year, about 11 months, he served uh, supervising interns at that hospital. The problem is, Frank wasn't really a doctor. He'd not spent a single day in medical school. He had no idea what he was doing. He just faked his way through this by making the interns do all the work. And then uh, finally he ended up quitting instead of uh, getting fired or being found out because he realized that he was putting lives at risk through this. But it turns out that, that Frank Williams is not really Frank Williams. His real name was Frank Abagnale. Maybe you've heard about him. He was uh, featured in the, in the movie Catch Me If You Can. He was this infamous con man who, by the time he posed as a doctor, had already logged something like a million airline miles in like 250 different countries or 25 different countries all around the world by, by conning the airlines out of uh, more tickets, posing as an airline pilot. And later on, he would get a job at the Louisiana Attorney General's office posing as a lawyer, again, faking his way through. If you, if you watch that movie, I don't know if you had the same reaction as me, I kept thinking, how did this work? How, how did he actually fool people into thinking that, that he was a pilot? How did he fool people into thinking that he was a doctor? And he goes, well, he looked at the part and he earned their confidence. He, he's wearing a white coat and he's walking around with medical records. He says he's a doctor, he must be a doctor. He's walking around with a uniform on, he's got an ID badge. He must be a pilot. But people never bothered to, to look deeper, to actually dig into his credentials. Did you really go to school there? Do you really even have a, a medical license? No one actually dug into this. Jesus is, is offering the opposite. He doesn't want us to just take his word for it. He says, don't accept my testimony about myself. Look at these other testimonies. Dig into this. In a lot of ways, he's the opposite of Frank Abagnale. He's not looking the part. He's not dressing the part. He's the Messiah. He is the saving king that God had promised to send to his people. But this is not what a Messiah is supposed to look like. A Messiah is supposed to be this strong military leader who gathers up a big army and throws the Romans out. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not looking the part at all. He's born to this poor family in a nothing town. It doesn't look like he's kicking the Romans out. What's going on here? But Jesus truly is the Messiah. He is the one and only Son of God. But they're missing out on this, and so he's inviting them to look at the evidence. Look at these powerful witnesses and see what they're saying about who he really is. Don't make assumptions about him, but dig deeper into this. Listen to the testimony of these witnesses. Dig deeper. Look closer, because he knows that if we do, we'll discover that he really is the one and only Son of God.
and will believe in Him. And by believing in Him, we will have life forever. But Jesus knows that that's not how it's going to go for most of us. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? See, the reality is we are far too easily fooled by people like Frank Abagnale and far too skeptical of Jesus. So if someone came and they were talking themselves up, proclaiming their own greatness, we might get on board, we might believe them. But here's Jesus, and all these powerful witnesses are showing that he is the one and only Son of God. And yet we miss out on it. We're looking in all the wrong places, and we miss out on what God is doing through him. For the people in Jesus' day, it came down to the fact that they were holding on to all these traditions that were passed down through Moses to their day, and they were hanging on to these things. But they totally missed out on who Jesus was. And so this trial, this courtroom scene, ends up flipping around on us, and we see the overwhelming evidence. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And in the end, we see that, that we are the ones who are on trial, and we are the ones who have to make a decision on this. Will we actually believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Will we put all of our trust in Him? He says if we do that, we have eternal life, life forever, starting right now. But if we refuse, then that means that we have rejected the saving King. It means we stand outside of the grace of God. So what do we do with this? We're going to keep it really simple uh, this morning. I want you to, to think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying that every single one of us will stand before his judgment seat. I want you to think about that moment, that moment when you stand before Jesus and he passes the verdict on your life. He says God has given him the authority to judge the entire world. So Jesus is going to be the one who, who sits in judgment on us. We stand before his throne of grace. What's the verdict going to be in our life? Jesus tells us the criteria. It's very simple. What do we do with him? The whole book of John is written so that we would believe in Jesus and have life. That's the reason John is taking the time to write down what he saw, what he experienced, what Jesus said, because he so desperately wants us to have life. And that's what Jesus offers us. Jesus doesn't want to condemn us. He wants to save us. That's why he came. And yet if we don't believe in him, if we refuse him, the reality is that we stand outside of God's grace. So that's the verdict on our lives. Every one of us is challenged to consider that moment, whether we've been in church for decades and decades or whether this is our first time we've ever been in a church service. We have to decide on Jesus. We believe that he really is the son of God and have life, or are we going to believe something else about him? Maybe he's just a good man, or maybe he's just a good teacher, or maybe he just said some interesting things. Our eternal destiny weighs in the balance. This also shows the importance of, of why we do what we do as a church family. For those of us who have come to believe that Jesus really is the, the Son of God sent to rescue the world, 
then our great mission, our great joy is so that more and more people, as many as possible, would hear that great message. And we as a church family, we've, we've strived to, to make that a clear focus. We've, we call the vision for this one mission. It's really simple. We just want to have God's heart for those who are far from him. So Jesus tells this story about a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and one of those sheep goes running off, it goes missing. And he leaves the 99 sheep and runs after that one sheep and keeps looking for it until he finds it. And when he finds it, he, he rejoices, he throws a big party. And Jesus says that's how God sees those who are far from him. He doesn't see them as, as failures. He sees them as his own loved sons and daughters, people made in his image, people for whom Jesus died to rescue them. And so we want to have God's heart for those who are far from him. Because the reality is every one of us have people in our lives who need Jesus. We know they need Jesus because we need Jesus. They're just like us. And so this whole idea behind one mission is simple. It's about each one of us uh, asking God to put one person on our hearts. Not a project, but someone that we deeply care about. And to be intentional about praying for that person. About pointing that person to Jesus. Asking God to do this great work uh, in their heart. Because we want them to experience the life that we've experienced in him. That's the, that's the bottom line for us. And, and we get to celebrate this morning. What we get to celebrate is what we want to happen again and again and again. This picture of new life, dying to our, our old life, dying to our sins, being redeemed in Jesus, being brought to new life, being set free by the power of the gospel. We want to be able to celebrate this again and again and again because this is our joy. This is our hope. We want everyone to see how amazing Jesus is because he's been so good to us. He's made all the difference in the world. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for sending your son to rescue and redeem. When we look at the, the gospel stories, we see that again and again, people will refuse him and they will reject him. God, I pray that we would not be so arrogant to think that that can't be us. I pray that we would look inside of our hearts and really consider what we actually functionally believe about Jesus. Is he really your son? Is he really king? Is he really our savior? God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would confirm this message in our hearts so that we would believe him with everything we have and that we would find life, eternal life in him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.